not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. Hello and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of recovery in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today's guest is a listener of this program who radically transformed her life. She got sober eight years ago. And when she made that change in her life, she came to realize that a lot of things needed to change, not just the things that were around her in her life, but more of the internal landscape. And she set out about drastically changing the way she thought about things. And then as she found her way, she decided to create tools for other people to do the same. I think you're going to find her story really interesting. I love her work, and I think you're going to really enjoy my guest today, Meet Adrian Enns. Adrian, hello, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's nice to chat with you again. We first met in New York and it was a brief meeting, but we both agree it was very memorable. And here we are a few years later, uh, getting to share some time together again. It's so nice to hear you. It's nice to hear you too. Thank you for having me. I was just saying, I love how the recovery world brings us together and um, people that are active, you know, recovery advocates or um, content creators, but also just uh, just all of us, everyday walks of life. The globe got so small for me since I quit drinking. It's incredible. Yeah, that's really special. Well, let's get to know you a little bit. I'm going to ask you to jump in and tell us your story. When I was thinking about this, I was asking myself, where do I start? Um, because so many times people ask, like, you know, when did things get so bad? And it's it's a difficult question to answer. But when I was thinking about it, you know, I grew up in a small town in Ontario. And when I think back to it, uh, drinking was very normal. It was, you know, a, for my parents' generation, an after work thing. I was very surrounded by it. And then when I got into high school, you know, there were parties on the weekend and it was just what you did. And I remember uh, getting to university and uh, there was someone that I was interested in at the time and he didn't drink. And I remember thinking, that is so unusual. It just seemed so abnormal to me. So it was just really interesting to remember that. So um, I guess I'm using air quotes, but it just, yeah, seemed so normal to me. And um, yeah, I went through my mid-20s, you know, drinking socially. I never thought that it was um, 
excessive because the people I was was with, we were all sort of doing the same thing. But in hindsight, I see that it was always a very steady stream in my life. And in terms of my job, I was in advertising. So that was also very um, social and that was a big part of it. But um, yeah, and back to this question of when do things start to go too far? And I'm not sure how to answer like that when, but what I do remember is that, um, you know, it became extremely regular for me and (laughs) extremely regular sounds like an oxymoron, but there you have it. Um, And I just know that when it became really troublesome for me, I was having really severe anxiety, really severe panic attacks, and it was the only thing that I felt could calm me down. And I was uh, living a life where the demands were really high. I felt anyways, um, professionally, personally, I can see now, I couldn't see it at the time, but I was completely disconnected. So, um, my way of handling stress was to just numb it all out. I just couldn't handle it. And, uh, that goes with feelings as well in hindsight, Um, I realized like I just never knew how to deal with my feelings. So if something horrible was happening, I wanted to numb it out. And if something great was happening, I also wanted to numb that out or quote unquote, celebrate it. So um, yeah, it just became a real crutch. So I was always fueling myself with something. So whether it was like alcohol or lorazepam or just anything that I could get my hands on to calm me down. So we all know that that's messed up because (laughs) the more you're doing that, your anxiety is just going to peak. So um, towards the end of my active addiction, I just remember on one of my worst days. Um, I was walking near my office at the time. So there's red flag number one. And I remember going into a church and I just felt so awful, so depleted, so exhausted, so spent. And I just wanted somebody to save me. And um, nobody came and I left there and I took a huge fall. I don't remember falling, um, but I remember picking myself up and I had blood running down my coat and there was, I could could tell my face was bleeding. And at that moment, um, a senior VP from my office walked around the corner with a colleague of mine. So I quickly poured myself into a cab and got myself home and 
made up some web of lies about being mugged. Like it was just such a disaster at that point. Everything hung in the balance, my wellness, my job, my marriage. And I was just so exhausted by all of it. But I share this story with you because that night in my bathroom, I looked at myself in the mirror and I was, you know, it was all bruised and I was just, but it was the first time I really looked myself in the eyes and I thought two things in that moment. I thought, number one, I never want my kids to see me like this ever again. And two, maybe this is how you're feeling on the inside. So um, not surprisingly, uh, you know, the next few weeks, I don't even remember the timeline, but um, it was a huge shake up for me. And, you know, I would go back to my ways, but shortly thereafter, I was just like, this is not sustainable. And I could hear this small voice, whereas like the voice of addiction, as we all know, is cunning, baffling and powerful, which I absolutely know to be true. But there was this smaller voice and it was saying to me, Adrian, you have to get home and you need to do this by yourself for yourself. So with that and the support of the people around me, I um, checked into a rehab facility and that was um, tough because I think the hardest, well, there are many hard parts, but one of the hardest parts is admitting that you have a problem because once you admit it, um, well, I felt so much shame and then I felt also under a microscope, right? Like now I've like given myself up and I've got no coping mechanisms to deal with all of this. And yet I just didn't feel that there was another way. And I didn't feel like I could do it on my own. I felt extremely fragile and I knew I needed help. So I remember calling that facility and I was supposed to call on the the day I was checking in and she asked me how I was feeling. And I said, you know, I feel awful. And uh, she said, that's amazing. means you're feeling something. And she was right. I was feeling something. So when I stood on the threshold of that facility, I just remember thinking, I have no idea what the rest of my life holds in store for me, but it can't be worse. It just felt completely uncertain and... um, Like I just had no other choice. And I remember standing there also thinking like, how is everybody else normal? Like, how are they all going through their normal day? And I can't hack this, but there I was. And I learned so much there. I could really drop my shoulders for the first time. I could really be honest. 
And I found that honesty really liberating. And I also, through the experience I had there and in my early recovery, I realized how much energy that I had put into that addiction. So, you know, in terms of getting alcohol, consuming the lies, all of the things. And I thought, you know what, imagine what I could do if I use this energy for good. And um, I also realized that I had put a lot of my power and self-worth outside of myself. So in terms of what other people expected of me, what they thought of me, what they wanted from me, and I thought, what would it look like if I chose how I was going to show up? And instead of letting other people drive the bus, I took the steering wheel. And um, I remember there was a woman in my early recovery who was who I thought was going to be able to, to help me out. And um, I remember talking to her one day and, you know, I'd said, I, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I'm just taking things moment by moment and I actually feel happy. Like I feel peaceful. And I can't remember exactly what I'd said to her, but she just implied that I wasn't serious about things. And the thing that really stands out to me is she said, I don't believe it when people say they're happy. And I hung up on her (laughs) and something inside me exploded that day. Um, It was like a volcano erupted and I cried really, really hard But in hindsight, it was really um, cathartic and beautiful because in that moment, I did choose myself. And I thought, you know, if I am going to all of this trouble to turn my life around, then I do want to be happy. I want to know deep joy. And um, I know we'll talk about it later on, but that really influences everything that I do. It was like, you know, what if I just choose each day, each moment, how I want to show up and have it be really aligned, like with, I'm kind of pointing to my core right now, like aligned with who I am, my value system, my integrity, like, what does that look like? And can I just be open to whatever comes as a result of that? So really leading more with my heart, not to say my head doesn't chime in a lot, but it's a lot quieter than it used to be. But, um, you know, what could showing up in this intentional way look like? And it's really guided everything. The other thing that is so interesting to me when I reflect is when I was in active addiction, I was really 
holding on to things. You know, um, I was in a troubled relationship and I was like, obviously not doing anything in my service to uh, better it. But I was like, you know, this can't fall apart. I can't lose my job. I was just clenching onto everything so tightly. And what's interesting is through my time in recovery, I loosened my grip on things. So that relationship ultimately did dissolve. And it was definitely for my greatest good. I would leave that job and start my own company. And not that that was easy either, but that was also for my greatest good. So it was just a very big learning in just, I really believe in that idea of taking the next right step, just doing the next right thing. And one foot in front of the other leads us down this path that we never could have imagined, but it's incredible. And just to add to that, it took me a long time to share this story because um, I was worried what my kids might think. I thought, what would they, you know, would they be ashamed of me or would they think that, I didn't love them or what have you. I don't know. I was making up all kinds of stories. I guess my mind was still pretty active. And um, and then I thought, no, you know, like ha- if I was still in that behavior, I would have more, a reason to question that. But I am truly trying to do my best right now and show up as authentically as I can and this is the truth of the situation and I want them in an age-appropriate way to know that you know sometimes we do have trouble and I want them to know if they have trouble that they can move through it that this is how life works and the other side can be better. And by talking about addiction, whether it's a problem they have or somebody else does, you know that the door is open. So maybe it's one of their friends. It's like we can all talk about this in a healthy way. So that was a big um, hurdle for me to overcome. And the last thing on that is in talking about this, which felt very vulnerable a few years ago, you know, it's opened all kinds of conversations with family, um, friends, uh, just people in the community, other parents, colleagues I used to work with. So um, where I used to stay quiet and think that nobody else was going through everything, everything was perfect, and there was so much shame the sharing brings a lot of healing. So that's why I'm grateful to share this today. Should it help somebody else? And sharing it always helps me. And that's why I love the podcast that you put out and the uh, space that you provide. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. And I'm going to have you dig a little bit deeper. I want you to tell us a little bit more about your rehab experience. Was it positive? Was it inpatient? And what was that like for you? It was definitely tough. It was a 21-day program. And I think the best piece of advice I received going in that served me well was that I wasn't there to make friends, that I was there just to do my own work. Um, That was great advice because, yeah, there's a lot of people going through a lot of different things and um, it's easy to get wrapped up in their stories. But um, Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, you feel, well, first of all, when you're entering, you're filling out this questionnaire of, you know, defining yourself as an alcoholic. And I was like, I kind of feel like most of the people I know would answer this the same way. So funny, not funny. Um, And, you know, you feel very institutionalized because, you know, like, you have no access to media, you have no access to the outside world, you can't, we couldn't exercise at the time, um, couldn't go for a walk, uh, couldn't use sharp objects, so you just really felt, and having regular, like, um, urine testing, so you just felt very exposed, but having said that, when I think of when we were actually in the group sessions. Um, It was the first time that I had admitted that I had a problem and everybody got it. So I felt like I could share in a really honest and open way without judgment. And I was introduced to the 12-step program, and just, I realized that I wasn't alone. And, you know, I have used the uh, example in some of my writing before, but, you know, just think of all the tables that you've been at. So whether it's a boardroom table or different dinner tables or tables with friends, when I was at that table, it was the most honest human, deeply raw conversations that I've ever had. Now I have conversations like that all the time, but at the time I didn't. So um, yeah, it was tough to be in there, but that time away from my day-to-day to just really focus on healing and getting better and not having anything as an option, you know, so you're just like, we're going to read, we're going to go to these classes, we're going to get better. Um, It was a very transformative experience for me. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. I I feel like I have quite a fascination with rehab because I never went to rehab, but I think Mm -hmm. I would have kind of liked it. And um, on this show, when people have shared, I I would have to say the majority, the vast majority, say that it's a positive experience. Um, 
the the dysfunction that leads you there is negative and it feels like a punishment to have to go. But once they got there, it was a really positive experience. And it sounds like you would say the same. Yeah. You know, I also have said like, I was like the next time, yeah, I wouldn't choose to go back there, but, (laughs) um, but also I needed to go. I really don't think I could have done it on my own and I needed to be, um, yeah, removed from my world with intense help. So yeah, it was pivotal for me. Absolutely. So you recently celebrated a milestone. Can you talk about what you did to celebrate? And can you also tell us about what your recovery toolkit contains and and what it looks like now? Sure. Um, Yeah, I just celebrated eight years sober, which I, yeah. And I, well, I did this, um, public speaking engagement and it was all about what addiction taught me about joy. And it was just interesting because I was talking about, yeah, like how that first, because well, for the facility that I went to, you have to be, you had to be sober for 72 hours, which just seemed like an eternity. So I can't remember, I have the um, count on my phone, but now it's like, must be now close to 3000 days as opposed to 72 hours. So yeah, that just felt very cathartic. And yeah, in terms of my toolkit, um, my life is very different these days. Yoga has been... um, It's a huge part of my most intentional living practice. I feel it's a practice that really connects us, mind, body, spirit. Um, Yeah, I have, I call it an intention setting practice. So I am very mindful of choosing an intention for the day and practicing it the best I can. It's not about being perfect. It's just about practicing. Uh, Meditation is also a very big part. And I've also um, slowed down. So I really try to just stay in the moment, not go into the past, not go into worrying about the future, but what is the most mindful thing that I can do in this moment to create the best life I can. Mm. Uh, You wrote that um, yoga taught you that your body can do incredible things, but that you're friends now. I, I love when you wrote that because I found the same thing. I was never all that interested in yoga, but when I started doing it, I realized that I really lived in my head and shoulders, yes. basically. Yes. <laughs> Apparently is is a common way that people that have had um, physical trauma or sexual trauma in their past describe themselves. They pull themselves up, you know, above above their body and, and live above it. And yoga taught me to climb down. I see it's like I have a cat perch in my chest and I live on top of that cat perch. And yoga taught me to climb down off that cat perch and get into my hips and get into my feet and actually live in my whole body and enjoy my whole body just just to be fully myself in a way that I didn't even know I was doing. I didn't 
I didn't really understand that I was dissociating from myself in that way. But, um, so I'm not like, I'm not super into putting my foot over my head or anything, (laughs) but I love that. It just, it it lets me reacquaint myself with, with this, um, earth suit as some people call it, (laughs) this body that I'm walking around in. Do you relate to that as well? Absolutely. And I'm laughing a little bit because, well, I practice um, Ashtanga yoga and yeah, to me it's, well, first of all, yes, I was very disassociated from my body. My body was just tense. Well, and when I was having anxiety, just in complete revolt against me, right? It was trying to wake me up and tell me like, this is not right. So to me, when I get on the mat, um, it's like just meeting myself every day, right? Because sometimes I can do amazing things and other days I can't. (laughs) But it's always breathing and meeting myself in the moment. And when I go deeper into that breath, I can stretch further. So I, and I feel that's a physical, mental, spiritual, emotional stretch. And I laugh about the shoulders because um, my teacher will always come around. She's still always touching my shoulders. So I was like, are these ever going to relax? <laughs> so I'm still <laughs> working on that. <laughs> um, you talked about self-medicating panic attacks and anxiety with alcohol. How mm-hmm. do you deal with them now? I'm guessing, I'm guessing yoga is part of that. But if you really, if you feel yourself... Um, moving in that direction, what, what are some of your go-to techniques now? Yoga has helped me immensely. I remember seeing a therapist way before I got sober and her, you know, telling me about breath work, but I was like, what? Like I'm, I'm breathing, you know, I, it really was lost on me, but the deep breathing, just grounding my feet. And I think because I feel connected to my body now like I have not had a panic attack since I've gotten sober and obviously not taking anything for that but I think it's also like I don't feel afraid of them anymore like so if I were to have one I would be like okay like bring it on like this is what it looks like I'm gonna let people help me and I'm going to move through it. And so, for example, when I do, especially when I do public speaking, I still feel that feeling come on. And, but I know that it's excitement and I recognize it and I don't feel afraid of it. And I breathe into it but to me it's like the lack of fear about it of like okay like let's it's more this oneness that I know that people listening are gonna be like great that's not really very helpful but um I think this practice of coming into your body just makes it stronger and more at one and the willingness to meet it dissolves it Mm mm-hmm I know what you mean. I sometimes just name it. I, yes. I can say like, oh, this is anxiety. I mean, I kept having it over the last few weeks. I'd be, I'd think, oh, my throat hurts. Oh no. Oh no. Yes. I'm getting sick, which is kind of a big deal right now. And, uh, and then I would name it. I think this is anxiety. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's anxiety over the illness that is devastating our world right now, but I I think it is anxiety nonetheless. And as soon as I name it, it's amazing. It it really dials it back really quickly. And as you say, and I don't I used to dread it, that feeling of oh no, oh no, oh no, I, I'm gonna have a it's gonna happen, you know that. Mm-hmm. When you know you're about to have a panic attack and yeah. you think, oh, here it comes, it's going to happen. And you kind of lock up and um, to just be able to say, oh, this is anxiety. Okay. I know what to do with this. Like this isn't really happening. This is just my body is on high alert. And um, you're right. I never thought of it as sort of welcoming it or allowing it to happen, but just, just acknowledging that it's there is really powerful and freeing in a way, isn't it? It is like that idea to what you're talking about is just like, yeah, we need it, right? Like we're like, okay, it's anxiety and it's more equal as opposed to I would let it overcome me and it was like my legs would shake, like I would sweat, like it was, I would almost, I collapsed on occasion. So it was, I just let it, you know, hit me like a Mack truck where now I'm like, nope, (laughs) that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important too to um, to take a moment and say, "Oh, why am I having this? Like, is there yes. a tiger coming at me? Like, do I need to be anxious right now? Because maybe you do. Yes, <laughs> like maybe that's a valid reason. And uh, and addressing that if you need to. But um, yeah, anxiety has its place. And I I often say, um, it, like everybody likes to be friends with an anxious person because we're the person that brings the sunscreen and everybody makes sure everyone has a water bottle. And, you know, the anxious person is 10 steps ahead of everyone else. And (laughs) I always tell my husband, there's a reason why he's calm and it's because I'm not. So he doesn't, he doesn't need to be panicked about everything because I am. That's so funny. yeah, so the you know there's times where there's purpose, but then to just decide, oh, do it's okay. I've got this. I don't. I don't need to. I don't need to panic over it. And I just, you know, sometimes you just your body is asking for awareness, and um, uh, the alarm bells just ring a little loud sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, I also felt just so like yeah, self conscious, or I I don't know, like it was very much. Um, yeah, something to do with that. Whereas now I just feel like, okay, like if this is messy or raw or things don't go right, like we'll just roll with the punches. Like I don't feel, um, I feel more willing to move through things, I think, and maybe more mm-hmm. capable. Mm-hmm. Did you do therapy to get to that point or did you figure that out on your own? That's a, I, you, you made some big strides here. <laughs> <laughs> All of it. Yes, I absolutely have had coaches and therapists and read a lot. And um, yeah, I, I find it fascinating, you know, from a human level, from a personal life standpoint, all the things. I want you to talk about your business a little bit. Tell us about your company, what it is and what you do. Sure. So um, further to that story about choosing to be happy and full of joy, um, my company is called May You Know Joy. And I was just like, you know, whether you're recovering from um, substance abuse or, you know, any kind of raw 
life event, I, I just found that we're all recovering, like trying to return to ourselves. So um, what I do is I always want to inspire people to live their most intentional life. And I have a product line of um, meditation and intention cards and journals. So really simple prompts. I had a set of meditation cards that really helped me. And I created them because I wanted to create a tool that is really accessible to people anytime, anywhere. Because sometimes we don't have access to a retreat or a therapist, and we just need this little nudge, this little reminder. So I created those. And yeah, out of that evolved coaching and retreats and workshops. And I have a membership program now. So I just, and I find a lot of people are just overwhelmed. And the biggest question I get is like, what does this mean? And how do I do it? And you know, it's all of the simple steps that we take that have a really profound and cumulative effect over time. So better to do all these small things than one big thing. So I always want to create, yeah, whether it's products, experiences, or conversations, things that support people in that intentional living journey. Now, I have to tell you, I have your book. It's called Intentional Days. Yes. And I have this set of cards, May You Know Joy cards. And I love them so much. Thank you. Um, I am, you know, I am a reader and um, I always have several books on the go, especially lately. (laughs) A lot of time. Um, But I really, really enjoyed. So the book that you wrote is, is part your story. And then part meditation prompts or gratitude prompts um, at the back of the book. And it's just, it's just so lovely. And um, a friend of mine, Courtney, who's been on the show before, she has a little, I think she calls it a shrine set up in her house. Courtney, forgive me if I'm getting the word wrong, but she has a little closet in her house where she's just put beautiful things there and she spends a few moments there every day and she uh, you know just either meditates or says a prayer or uses some kind of cards or something and so she was the one who really got me on to using your cards because they have like a little a wish for the day may you know joy or may you know courage or um and then a, a reading that goes with it and it's just so lovely so i have to tell you i really really enjoy the work that you've done and the offerings that you have because they are really sort of self-directed but i just feel that they're not like i'm not a super um woo woo person I try to be I'm really interested in it but I it never sticks Mm -hmm. but I love I love that yours your work is more about me you know there it's it's not as mystical it's just more about like you say being intentional and choosing what your day is going to look like and giving you something to focus on that's about yourself and not sort of telling you you know the ace of spades says that you're going to have a bad day or something it's really more about you know, just choosing something to direct your thoughts for the day. So I really, really love that. And there was a few things in your book that I wanted to talk about and ask you about. 
Um, one of the things you talk about is uh, your thoughts being an internal board of directors. Tell me yes. more about that idea and what that means. Well, actually, that came from um, a workshop I was giving. I didn't. Someone in the workshop said that, so I have to give her full credit. But um, we just loved this, you know, because we were just talking about, um, you know, our minds and how our minds can just you know, really carry us to so many wild and dysfunctional places. And it's sort of like, this was a two night workshop and she came back the second night and she said, yeah, I fired my board of directors. (laughs) And we all like howled and clapped. And I was like, yeah, like, it's just like, what influences do we want supporting us, right? Like this is what I'm always um, trying to live in my own life and encourage to other people is like, can we be our own best friend? Like, can we be on our own side? And as you said earlier, you know, maybe anxiety is there too. And we're like, okay, anxiety, you know what? Your fear about this is warranted, but only to this degree. But can we have a board of directors that is supporting us and, you know, aligned with our deepest truth and our highest well-being? Like this is the dialogue that we want going on instead of something that is disproportionately negative or judgmental or puts us in a state of lack or unworthiness. You know, if you go back in our archives far enough, you'll find an episode of the Bubble Hour when we used to have four hosts and we were all together at a meetup, the four of us, and we recorded a live show. And afterwards, we had a gathering for some friends and listeners in the area. And one of the ladies that came, uh, this is this really lovely funny, funny lady. And she came and she said to Catherine, one of our former co-hosts, she said, um, you know, Catherine, I don't have an inner critic anymore. I now have an inner, uh, advocacy board and, um, and I have appointed your voice onto my board of internal advocates. And so whenever I'm criticizing myself, she says, I pause and I think, what would Catherine do? And, um, you know, you can sort of think of the women that you admire and and assign them to your board and consult with each of them. Okay, what would Angela Merkel do in this situation? Yes. <laughs> um, or who, whomever you, you look up to, you know, your great Aunt Bess, who's always, you know, got a wise take on things. And so you can really sort of silence that inner critic by, as you say, being intentional and thoughtful about what you like what you're saying is have fun with it too, right? Like, you know, we can lighten it up a little bit and not take everything so seriously, which is advice I always need to take. Right. Because, you know, I feel like us very worried little girls, we somehow got the message that we needed to be very serious and we needed to be a step ahead of everything. Yes. And this led us to become <laughs> very worried women. Yes. <laughs> Unnecessarily so. Um, another thing you, you wrote uh, that you had learned, and I really loved this too, is that the universe only ever has three answers. Uh, yes, not yet. And I have something better in store. Tell me about how you came to learn that. 
I just love it. I can't remember where I saw that first, but that along with Rumi's quote that life is rigged in your favor are things that I try to go back to often, you know, so when something is not working out, you know, um, instead of going to, again, that beating yourself up, I didn't do it. You know what I mean? Like this place of lack and judgment and really getting down on yourself is, you know, like maybe it's not meant for me, or maybe I need to be more patient or there's a bigger master plan. And I just think when we think about things like that, like there's joy in that and there is magic and possibility and our brains really are only a Rolodex, you know, of all of the experiences we've had. So it's like opening up to maybe there are better things that are possible that I don't even know about. Hmm. I love that. And you mentioned earlier about ending your relationship yes. after you um, were in recovery for a period of time. And, and your book talks about how you harnessed intentionality around your attitude towards that as well, that it was really getting the best of you, just the frustration and heartache of going through this. And you decided to take charge of the narrative by... Um, by reshaping your attitude towards it. Can you talk about some of the things that you did to, um, to make that process a little bit more intentional? Yes. Yes. So that was, um, yeah, a really difficult time and certain things were going on that I really didn't agree with. And, um, I was, yeah. And then it's just fraught with emotion and fear and all sorts of things. So I know what you're referring to. And I was just like, you know, um, there was one day we sat down with these lawyers and I was, you know, we all, for anyone who's been through it or hasn't, you have to collect, you know, all of your financial documents. So not only is it emotionally grueling, but you have all of these non-fun things that you have to do. And um, in addition to getting, you know, coaching and therapy during that period, I was like, how am I going to do this, you know, in a way that doesn't feel awful? Like, what is the end goal? How can I frame this in a way that I can handle it? So on my desktop, I labeled the folder, uh, the Freedom Project, and I was like, you know, in terms of collecting all of these documents, I was like, I can work on the Freedom Project for, you know, 15 minutes a day and collect everything. And then I said to my lawyer, I said, you know, we're only going to refer to this as the Freedom Project. And she's like, OK, but she kind of got a kick out of it. But just when I aligned this very difficult situation with the fact that there was going to be a positive outcome. And while I might not like and enjoy all of the steps, how could I tether myself to joy, freedom, my best life? So this gave me a way to do it and it made me laugh. So that's what I did in addition to signing all of my documents with Goldmarker. <laughs> uh, I love that. I don't yeah. think I, I think I would be a little too shy to do that with my, uh, 
with my lawyers and accountants. So I love that you did that because that is it just really so... messes with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my accountant uh, showed up for a meeting with a, a purple pen and she said she was letting her wild side out as she took notes from our oh meeting. Oh my and God, I love it. A purple pen is as wild as most accountants get. So I could just see that a gold marker would blow <laughs> your lawyer's mind. <laughs> well, we only have a few minutes left um, before we wrap up here. So before we go, you know what? I just feel like this is this has been a really tough time for a lot of people. Um, our our um, solitude and isolation are not the same thing. I read that somewhere today. And I think that that is so important. So I'm having a, a lot of solitude right now uh, in not by choice, but the same situation we all are. I really am feeling for anyone who's listening that is is hurting or suffering or finding that they, whatever supports that they were starting to build for themselves to um, make changes or support the changes that they had made, they might feel like that was pulled out from under them. So I'm feeling like a, an extra dose of love and encouragement from you and I today might be super helpful and, and in, in, in line with what people need. So I guess I'm going to ask you to just take a minute and talk to that person who's suffering or hurting or frustrated or just having a terrible day today and um, uh, let them know what, what you have to say about hope and recovery and making changes. Wow. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> I would say to that person, um, First of all, like to know that you're not alone, that, um, you know, these raw and vulnerable experiences, as much as it's probably extremely difficult or impossible to believe it, there's a lot of beauty here. And it's what we choose to do with this rawness that makes all of the difference. So when I talk about intentional living, um, it's just really about creating a life that you actually want to be in and live in. And what does that look like? I know um, in my early days of recovery, you know, um, in addition to how the substance make you makes you feel, it's just part of your routine. So, you know, what is it that really nourishes us? So in terms of, you know, whatever you're intaking, like water, food, rest, um, you know, this can be a time where we get on social media, but really limiting those things that make you feel less than, anxious, upset, like, so really having things that fulfill you and nourish you. Um, and really also, I think this is a huge time for anything that grounds you wherever you feel supported and nurtured. There are lots of amazing books and podcasts and online recovery groups and yoga classes. So even if it feels like, oh my God, that's what other people do. Like when I went into my first yoga classes, like that's what other people do. And I'm like, well, 
I'm just going to try it. Like just be on your own side and open to the possibilities because you can do it. And the work is a hundred million percent worth it. Wow. (laughs) You are certainly an inspiring woman. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Share your heart with us today. And um, and hello to your puppy. Yes. <laughs> She's been pretty good told, up until now. <laughs> I told you someone's dog was going to bark. I would have put money on it being mine, but it was yours. <laughs> She's telling you it's dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's our cue. We know. We know when to listen to the universe, and the universe is telling us. Yes. <laughs> Wrap it up. Wrap it up. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Real quick, before I let you go, how can our listeners find you? They can check out my website, which is mayyounowjoy.com, M-A-Y-Y-O-U-K-N-O-W-J-O-Y. Also, the cards that you spoke so kindly of. Um, I love Instagram, and the Instagram handle is the same, at mayyounowjoy. I pick a card on my story every single day. So if you just want to pick an intention with me, You can find it uh, right there and everything else is on the website. And um, yes, I wish you all many intentional days. Thank you so much. It's been good to talk with you. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for listening. If you want to send me an email, you can reach me, thebubblehour at gmail.com. You can also find links to my blog, Unpickled, and the Bubble Hour website, and also any books that I have been writing lately, which is not up yet, but the last one that I wrote is there. All of that is on my website, jeanmccarthy.ca. That's all for this week, everyone. We are thinking of you so much. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong Just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the moment I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Can always hear when you see.
Just want to 